This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. This is episode 31. On today's show in our news segment, we're going to chat a little bit about Airbus. So they've got uh, an increase in deliveries this past month, month which is uh, great to see. Number two, a really scary moment, a hailstorm uh, cracked a windshield uh, of a recent flight. And we're going to talk a little bit about COVID and the odds of getting it uh, on a flight. So it seems like it's actually quite low, which I think all of us or a few of us would have predicted many, many months ago when we were you know, still in the grips of the uncertainty of it all. But uh, some new data is pretty interesting, suggesting that you're pretty unlikely to catch it on a flight. In our engineering segment, we'll talk about Blue Force composites, some of the interesting work uh, that Blue Force Technologies is doing. And we're going to talk about the Voltaire Casio, which is a, a quirky hybrid uh, electric aircraft. And then lastly, in our EVTOL segment, we're going to talk about the Kitty Hawk heavy side, which is flying. And uh, they're kind of making some waves recently. But I think uh, Alan's got some strong views here on the overall scope of the EVTOL certification process and whether some of these companies are actually going to make it to the finish line. So Alan, let's start with Airbus. Deliveries are up. This makes you excited, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, it's good to see some airplanes being delivered for once. Uh, Airbus sold about 57 airplanes in September. Uh, I'm sure. Exactly 57. 57. It's an easy number to remember Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. that they're probably clinking the champagne glasses in Toulouse because that is a decent number. It's the highest number it's been all year, and I think they're hoping that it continues to rise. Uh, that's in comparison to Boeing's 11 aircraft sold in September. So there's a five-to-one difference between Boeing and Airbus, which I'm sure makes Toulouse excited to hear that. Uh, but it does. I think that the bigger picture here is that aircraft sales and deliveries are not so much sales, but deliveries are starting to happen. And there's a, a small but growing demand for aircraft. I think that will continue as we start to come on the backside of COVID, even though it doesn't feel like it. I think uh, for the most part, there is a big uh, positive change in COVID. And, I, and with vaccines coming relatively soon, I think we're going to uh, be looking forward. And hopefully some of these airlines are looking forward to and start picking up some airplanes because when the demand hits, people will going to go on vacation. I, I don't know how they're not going to go on vacation after being stuck in their homes for literally a year. I think there's going to be a lot of travel once everybody feels comfortable. They're going to get out and they're going to spend some money and the airlines want to be ready for that. Yeah, well, it says the bulk of the delivery, so 43 of the 57 were A320s, which is narrow body. Yep. But question for you, I know very little about airplane deliveries, but why is anyone buying new aircraft right now? I mean, couldn't they delay? I mean, is this really such an urgent need? Like, who's buying Who's buying planes right now? Well, yeah, airplanes go out of service for a multitude of reasons, because a lifetime has expired, because they burn too much fuel, because it's just not worth putting more money into them. That's most likely the case. 
if you can save enough money on fuel because you're using the the newer A320, which has better engines on it, then mm-hmm. you will make that change. Because a, a lot of and some of these aircraft may be going out to lease, which is another uh, valid marketplace in these tumultuous times that leasing an aircraft probably makes a lot of sense. The leasing companies are being able to, to uh, you know, lease an aircraft for a while. And if, if you don't need it, you can return it sort of thing, uh, just like a car. Yeah. So I, I, I think there's that sort of uh, weird marketplace that's happening now. But you do swap airplanes quite frequently. If you go look at the aircraft boneyards, though the aircraft graveyards, they're full of airplanes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and there's a cycling through even a company like Southwest, which is all 737s. They do take those older 737s out of service and put the newer ones in because they're much more efficient. They have all the the fancy upgrades. You got the uh, more amenities to them. They are much more efficient. So it makes sense to to take the old ones out of service. So speaking of A320s, there was a flight out of Chicago recently, a United Airlines flight that had to make an emergency landing. I mean, they just right off, right out of uh, the gate, pretty much. I mean, they made a loop over Lake Michigan after leaving Chicago, came back. But this photo is crazy. They had a shattered windshield from hail, which I've never heard of that before. I mean, you think of, you know, planes being insulated from all this stuff. I know we've talked about bird strikes a bunch on the show, but yeah, some passenger, I guess, is there just walking out or maybe there's a crew member. But I mean, the windshield looks shattered just like. You know, if you took a, a huge rock to your car windshield, like it just looks right. the same, which surprises me. I think it surprised me for two reasons. One, I kind of assumed they're made of like a polycarbonate that just could not possibly be shattered. But then I guess the, you know, with hail or just with the particulate in the air and the high speeds, that would probably make them very cloudy to see through. Is that is that right? Well, they're, they're made of multiple layers. If you actually uh, were to see an a, a aircraft windshield, especially a jet windshield, that there there are multiple layers involved there. They're a combination of glass and what I would consider like a, a bonding agent or between the layers such that you can break the outer layer and the, the remaining layers can handle the pressurization loads and aircraft loads, which are minimal. But I mean, the pressurization loads are the big one uh, without bursting, right? I mean, your worst mm-hmm. case scenario is it lets go and airplane depressurizes and bad stuff happens. So they're designed to take that and and birds also, right? So they have to also take birds running into them, which happens quite often and uh, keep on flying. So the hail, to me, the hail thing is more of an issue of what were the pilots doing flying into a hailstorm? You have weather radar on those airplanes, which should be able to discern for the most part discern where severe weather patterns are and you want to avoid those if you see red on the weather radar screen those are places which may have hail (laughs) you probably want to stay away from those why you fly into that i don't know i know it seems to happen mostly on takeoff and landing right where they're trying to get Mm -hmm. out of some place or get into some place a little bit of a rush to get in and out they think and squirt between two two parts of a storm and get between these two red cells which is what typically it looks like on the screen uh so you're trying to s- split the difference and get through there before the aircraft get things up but <laughs> it's it, dan it's just like if you're in kansas in uh april and you there's hail big hailstorms out there you don't go driving towards a thunderstorm and you can see that thing out there <laughs> And it's just going to dent the heck out of you. It's not just going to break the windshield. 
It's going to damage the leading edges. It can and severely damage the engines, which are all designed to take some level of hail. But structurally, man, you just dent the heck out of that airplane and composite panels, anything that's a carbon fiber panel, a fiberglass panel, a fairing and whatnot, man, that the impact damage of those can be really a pain in the backside to go find and, and to evaluate. So for that 30-second excursion, a lot of repairs, man, a lot of repairs. So speaking of commercial flights, man, everything in the show is just really flowing together right now, Alan. Uh, COVID <laughs> is not really much of an issue on planes, which again, I think is probably, you know, if we were to say that we go, go back in time and tell people this back in April or May, they'd be like, you're crazy. But some interesting data. Um, so I guess uh, Dr. Powell of the IATA uh, you know, he's got some peer-reviewed literature, says 1.2 billion passengers have flown and 44 people have been confirmed to have caught COVID from another flyer. So that essentially means one case out of every 27 and change million travelers. And that's actually higher than being struck by lightning, which your risk in the U.S. is one in every 1.2 million people. Mm-hmm. So pretty interesting. Uh, definitely counterintuitive. And in this article from simpleflying.com, they have a nice little graphic that kind of explains the difference. And this was, I guess, air, some stuff from Airbus. But as we've talked about before, cabin air is fully re- renewed and you know sent out every two to three minutes. There's a constant injection of fresh air. Yep. They have great filters. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's air flowing bottom to top and just sort of taking all this stuff out. So with masks, even in close quarters with every seat occupied, it's... It's a pretty safe experience. Does that, does that seem accurate? I think it's very accurate. Having taken a number of flights over the last couple of months, I would say that's extremely accurate. And it it, it mirrors what I have seen up close, which is a couple of things. People are not talking on those airplanes. And if the, the major source of transmission is um, speech, which is spraying water droplets, which seems to be the bigger seems the big risk in, in the COVID discussions, People are not yelling and screaming on an airplane. They're pretty much quiet, watching a movie, reading a book, not saying anything with a mask on the whole time. So the exposure seems relatively small, and there is not a soul on the airplane that's coughing, wheezing, sniffling, anything of the sort, because it's going to immediately take a flight attendant to you uh, to ask what's going on. Shut up and fly, (laughs) sir. No talking. Shut up and fly. Yeah. Right. Um, Right. Everybody's thinking the same thing. This is America. You're not allowed to cough these days. You know that. (laughs) Well, which is funny. Like I, I've had a, the most remarkably amazing allergy free year of my life. I've been a very allergy full person. If that's a word, I've had a great coming, you know, me moving back to the East coast just a year ago. I've had a great time with my allergies. Like I haven't had even a sniffle, but recently when I put my mask on, I feel like it has some effect, especially when I like exercise a little bit and then have to put my mask back on. I feel like it's causing me to get a little bit sniffly. I don't know if it's like a recirculated, heavy, very moist air, whatever it is, but I'll like put my mask on sometimes and I'm like start to get a little bit like sneezy and I'm like, nothing's changed except for the mask being on and me breathing heavy into it. So I was doing some baseball stuff last night and, you know, I have the mask on the whole time and the times I'm like running around and doing a little bit more, I start to get a little sniffly. And so there's clearly some effect with like the recirculated air within your mask, which 
Yeah. I actually do have a I, I flight agree. planned in the next month. So I got to be, oh. I got to be, make sure they're all cl- cleaned up. I got fresh masks. So anyway, <laughs> but these are, I mean, these are good numbers and hopefully, you know, Americans start to get their um, trust back in flying or just really have somewhere to go. I think that's part of it right now is like, where is anyone going to go with a lot of stuff being half, half open and limited and less fun? But when Disney, but when Disney, land and world open back up well disney world's open but disneyland is not right disney world is open in florida but disneyland is is not yeah in california it's not i'm late to late late to the party i guess yeah you can go to florida but i i i've you got to commend the the staff and the flight attendants and the pilots and all the ground crew that are working their tail off to provide the the safest experience you can on an airplane they have been extremely good in every instance that i have seen they have done way beyond the call of duty to to provide a level of cleanliness and and uh safety for the passengers i i I really appreciate it and and i notice it and i know a lot of other passengers appreciate it too absolutely All right, moving on to our engineering segment. So interesting article from compositesworld.com, which they have a really very thorough website. I appreciate uh, just, they've got lots of interesting stuff. So if you're interested in the way a lot of these aircraft structures are made, definitely check out Composites World. But talking about EVTOLs, obviously with battery technology being, you know, way better than when I was, you know, a kid, especially, (laughs) you know, these, yeah, everything required AA batteries, but battery technology has come a long way, but obviously it's still a limitation with these uh, EVTOLs. And so saving weight is imperative, right? And so obviously they're going, a lot of these companies in this race are going to carbon fiber and these really high dollar and low weight and very stiff composites. So Blue Force Technologies seems like they're really innovating in this space. Alan, what are some of the unique things that they're doing? Well, they're working with uh, Beta Technologies up in Vermont, and, and Beta Technologies is now up in upstate New York with their Alia aircraft, which is a, their next-generation EVTOL aircraft. But Blue Force is building the composites for that aircraft, and it's, it looks like they've they obviously have built one, and maybe there's a second one planned. But the the Composites World article was really interesting because it's the first time that you kind of look behind the curtain on one of these EV2L companies on how they're building the aircraft because a lot of times it's all slick marketing and bright lights and all these uh, uh, fancy decorations, and they don't see the people actually assembling the aircraft. And in this case, you can. And what... The photos show what the article talks about is Blue Force using really simple tooling. And sometimes on these composite aircraft and any composite uh, structure, you need a relatively expensive tool to build parts against. And what Blue Force is doing in, in prototype mode, essentially, it looks like they're using hard foam and machining hard foam to the right shape and then building up the carbon fiber part off of that hard foam tool and using resin infusion. So they're using dry carbon fiber fabric or fabric has some tack to it so they can hold it in place. And then, so they got it, they, they assemble all the carbon fiber plies essentially dry and then a resin infusioning those plies 
and at, with a room temperature cure epoxy. So it's similar to uh, what maybe people how they make boats, uh, that kind of technology. A lot of aer aerospace uh, composites involve uh, 250 degree cures, something that takes elevated temperatures to, to kick it off and to cure it. And a lot of times it involves an autoclave. So what Blue Force has done is gone from the autoclave expensive tool mode is to basically rapid prototype with a, it looks like a foam mold, building off, off the foam mold, using room temperature epoxies and dry carbon fiber, which is going to be the, the least expensive thing to do to get some parts out the door. Now, that, that won't be a production. No way that would be production because the tool will change over time and get damaged over time. It's just not rigid enough. But to get quick parts out, pretty good way to do it. And the Alia aircraft is still in that prototype mode where they, they may be making changes to it. So why invest in a really expensive tooling if you're going to have to make changes to it? So uh, hats off to them. I think that that's pretty much a pretty smart move because if you're just in preliminary stages of flight tests like uh, Beta Technologies is on this aircraft, uh, you don't want to spend way too much money on something that's probably going to be put in the back, back 40 in a couple of months anyway. Pretty cool, though. It is a pretty cool idea. All right, so moving on, uh, the Volt Aero Casio has taken flight recently. So this one is prob probably has a lot easier road to certification, right? Because this is something that they're, you know, they're they're modifying a uh, this is a Cessna Skymaster, Sky right? Yeah. So they have a hybrid where they have one 370 horsepower, you know, uh, internal combustion engine, and then they have three electric motors uh, paired along with it. So Alan, what what sticks out to you as being unique right now about what Voltero is doing and this configuration? Well, I think it's a true hybrid. I think that's the first thing because we hear so much about pure electric and batteries. We don't hear much about hybrid anymore. I seem to miss that step in the mm -hmm. logical progression, right? We, cars went from, well, that's what the Prius is. A Prius is a hybrid. And now we're to the yeah. sort of the Tesla world now, which is all electric. But this is something that's in the middle where it has an internal combustion engine and then it has basically a drive shaft coming out of it. And on top of that drive shaft are three independent motors, electric motors that can drive the same drive shaft. So there's a little bit of a gear train there. Uh, and the, the thought is that, uh, and this the aircraft they're using right now is really a development basis, but essentially it goes like this. I can use my electric motor to, for takeoff and landing where noise can be an issue. And probably fly most of the way with uh, the uh, electric propulsion system, but if I need an internal combustion engine for to get me an extended range or to charge batteries or whatever, I can fire that thing up too. So it's a combination of both, which should, in theory, have a faster pass to certification. In theory, because you have an inter sort of given internal combustion engine and normal mm -hmm. quote unquote normal fuel systems and things of that sort. So. Uh, uh, they they are promoting a four seater, a six seater, and then a ten seat aircraft to use with this engine. So they're going to get the engine certified, and then put that engine technology into a different airframe, uh, very similar to the Adam aircraft A five hundred. If you remember back twenty years ago, uh, so it's got this funky tail and a propeller on the back of it. 
that's where they're going with this technology. So it is curious because the time frame seems right. 2022, 2023, this thing's all certified. You can move on and, and increase its scale to different size airplanes, depending on what you need. So uh, this is something to watch because I'm, I'm starting to get growing more and more concerned about these pure electric vehicles and how long it's going to take to get there. This may be that intermediate step and they may have success in that marketplace. Yeah, and, and so what's the purpose of the of the Casio? This one is not obviously going to be an air taxi, right? Uh, no, it doesn't sound like it, right? I mean, it could be a very efficient business aircraft. That's kind of what it, that's what it feels like. That uh, and the cost of operation on any aircraft is the killer, and, and obviously there's a cost of ownership, which is huge in most <laughs> in most business type mm -hmm. aircraft. But they also the copper the cost of operation can run several grand an hour to operate it, and the thought process is that electric propulsion is so much less expensive to do versus, uh, particularly for a jet engine versus propeller, but that just to drive down the cost of operation. Therefore, it's much more efficient, much more likely to enter the marketplace in a in a more competitive position because. What are you competing against? You're competing against something like the the Textron Beach King Air or that type of airplane for that marketplace. It's roughly the same kind of air, size airplanes. Beach has airplanes that sort of fit that same mold with like the 350, the King Air 350 being an eight or 10 person airplane. So that's the com competitor to that. So you have to come up with something a lot more efficient, which is I think is where they're going. All right, we're going to enter our final segment of the show today where we talk about electric. So EVTOLs have been a consistent theme on the show. And in today's, we're going to chat a little bit about Kitty Hawk. So their heavy side aircraft has made some waves recently. Um, you know, they've had a bunch of, of recent flights. And this is an interesting situation because they've recently abandoned one of their other projects back in June, the Flyer Project. Uh, pretty much everyone who was working on that was laid off, unfortunately. And it seems like now they're kind of pushing forward into a more plane-shaped aircraft called Heaviside. So the the flyer was, you know, quirky, like all the other EVTOLs. Um, that's probably not the right word to put, you know, to, to, to put to it. But, you know, all the EVTOLs have a very unique shape. They're all semi-wise, you know, a lot of them are similar, some are not. Either way, this one, the heavy side is more of a plane shaped vehicle. It looks very traditional. It's a one seater. Um, but Alan, we're going to chat about overall, you know, the certification and, and some of the issues involved here. But what, what is your, your feeling here with the heavy side aircraft from Kitty Hawk? Well, Kitty Hawk just released a 15 minute video recently, which describes some of the flight test program that's been going on. Uh, they show the aircraft in flight, which I think needs to happen more, actually. We don't, we don't see a lot of these aircraft in flight. Uh, and they, they highlight a couple of the key people in the company, one of them being a former FAA administrator, Michael Herta, uh, as sort of the cornerstones. That's what it felt like. It felt like they're trying to establish these cornerstone personalities for the company and then show how the aircraft is getting supported by these these pillars of innovation and aviation all that's fine right the the aircraft design is sort of unique it has three propellers on each wing or, or 
power plants in each wing, electric motors or propellers on each wing. And it's got a canard in the front. So it's got uh, two propellers on the front of this canard and it has a kind of a standard shaped tail on the backside. So the, the, the logic in all this is that the, the, and the, the approach is that the, the, the engines or the power plants pivot, the motors can pivot, they're on pivoting platforms. So they can sort of point the thrust down or point the thrust aft and um, get from hover to forward flight pretty simply. And in fact, what we see when you watch that video is the transition from hover flight to forward flight or from takeoff into forward flight happens pretty fast because being in hover eats up all kinds of, of power out of the batteries. So you want to get to that forward flight and get into that flying mode as fast as you can. And you actually see that in that video where they go from takeoff to moving pretty fast uh, in probably 10 seconds or less. So that all makes sense. And I think the flight technology makes sense and the way that the system is set up where if you lost an engine or motor or lost two motors, you can still uh, fly the aircraft safely. All that makes sense. Okay. I think in every one of these EV2Ls and what the worrisome part is from a outside looking in and, and have been around a lot of aircraft programs and watch them develop over time is, are they on a path to certification? How fast can you do that? And can you start getting paid because you're in a production mode for making the aircraft? And Kitty Hawk is in a really weird position right now that they have a design, they're flight testing this design, they have some data obviously coming back from that design, and they brought on the former FAA administrator to be one of their focal points for quote-unquote safety. But when you start digging above, you know, you start scraping the surface a little bit, you realize a couple of things. They do not have a, a special condition from the FAA about how to certify this aircraft. So they're going to need that. They're going to understand what their certification basis is for the aircraft pretty fast. And I think some of these companies are working with the FAA to develop that because the FAA is not going to make a set of regulations for EVTOLs. What they're saying is that these EVTOLs can fit into the existing regulatory structure from the FAA with some special conditions probably that uh, are applicable to each different model. That's where the FAA is headed. But I haven't seen a lot happen that way yet. And you haven't seen a lot of the, the EVTOL companies like Kitty Hawk even mention it. The, the, the second piece is having the right staff to certify it if it doesn't take a lot of looking to see who is on their staff from a uh, certification engineering perspective a der type of person they should have a bunch of der's on staff that are sort of experienced people been around this a while that can help them through the faa process and until they load up on some of those der engineers then how close are they really to being certified? So it, it even though it, the technology seems great and there's a lot of funding in some of these projects, all that is cool. But if they're really, really pushing towards getting to an FAA certification, you're going to have to staff up with the right kind of people to get to that finish line. And I haven't seen it too much. I see a lot of postings going out. You see some of these companies picking specific applications and disciplines in which they need more immediately. But you're going to need about somewhere 15, 20 DERs on one of these programs, these small programs for Part 23, depending on you know what all the specifics are and how much workload mm -hmm. there is, how much testing there's going to be 
But you're going to need a good number of people to do that. And what I'm seeing in terms of the staffing is a lot of very bright and smart people, but maybe not a lot of aircraft experience. And there is something to say about being in the trenches of a couple of aircraft programs to realize what it takes to get to the finish line. It's it's a long season. Yeah. So it sounds to me it's kind of like you know a, a company, a construction company wins a build, wins a bid to build a skyscraper, mm-hmm. and then you figure out that they only have one crane and one dump truck in, right. their, in their fleet. <laughs> right. You know, wonder why the well, bid's so low. Yeah. <laughs> how, yeah. How are you going to get this done? Yeah. So, I mean, say they were to staff up. I mean, that that process alone sounds really scary. Just tough. I mean, finding 15, 20 DERs. I mean, well, you've done uh, this for a long time. You're a DER. I mean, are, are these people just, you know, ready to jump into it? I mean, it seems like the staffing would be a long process too. It, it is. And what ends up happening is for every DER, you probably have three or four engineers that are supporting the DER to get the the work done because there's just so much work has to be done in a short amount of time. And so when you start putting the numbers together, when you have to sit down and figure out what your uh, cost of labor is and how expansive that it needs to be and all the different, you need someone to, to fix an IT person, you need HR, you need uh, mechanics, you need all kinds of people to, to do all kinds of fun- janitorial functions. So you start looking at how much it's going to cost you just to keep the doors open. And that number is going to be between ballpark 50 to, depending on the size, 50 to $100 million a year. And you go, when we push that button and we start that process, you realize the cash burn is going to be big. So how long can we, you know, bluff this thing and, and tell everybody we're going to get to certification before we have to push the big red button and actually do it? And I think there's a little bit of game of chicken going on right now about that, where they're showing the videos, they're they're demonstrating the technology. All that is great, great, great stuff. Unbelievable stuff. Really world-changing things. But the real changer is when they can get the thing certified, get the aircraft certified. And I, I and, and Dan, you you watch us as much as I do. I haven't seen a lot of noise on the certification side at all i hear talk about it but i haven't seen anything really pop out yet and i think that's one of the issues that's going to happen in the next couple of months is that some of these evto companies that do really want to push the certification uh relatively quickly haven't heard much from the faa because the faa faa is like everybody else they've been in covid19 like the rest of us so it's hard to hard to do some of those things where the faa wants to put those new requirements or uh, requirements that are applicable to their specific design out, but they just don't have the staff to do it right now. I think that's a real, real tough point right now. Alan, I feel like you need to be the right-hand man of some of these investors yeah. looking to put money into some of these companies. I mean, I, w- I wonder, because I wonder as you're talking, like, do investors know this? Like, do they have someone that can say, hey, like, what does it look like? Because I think from the outside looking in, it's really easy to be excited about a lot of these EVTL wall designs. Just be like, oh, this design's gonna win. This mm. design's gonna win. It's the coolest, like, you know, but there's a lot in in the behind the scenes to get actually getting it to market. There is. And, and I think a, of course that that's true with tons of products too, right? But it is. this seems especially complicated. It, it's it's really complicated. It's way beyond it, it's it's uh Apple computer developed in the Macintosh or the Apple II. It's it's there's a certain I, I, 
it's hard to think about this way. When you think about technology products, you think about the, the outcome of the, the actual product itself, not the people that help create it. You yeah. have to have that little bit of chemistry of people working together towards this common goal. And it seems a little bit rah-rah, right? And it seems we're all playing uh, out in the playground, rah-rah sort of thing. But that's not what it takes. It does take people thinking somewhat alike on what the approach is and willing to negotiate with one another about where I can give and what I need to, what and when I have to take. And getting to a, there is never an optimal design, but there is a design that will is sellable. That's where you have to get to. And I just, if if you haven't, it's hard to describe what that process is like. Uh, if if you've been through it, you know. And that's the only way to, it's really the only way to describe it because it is a mind-altering, exhausting, mentally exhausting three to five years of your life, which you never think is going to be over. And it's constant turmoil and family life constraints and all the stuff that comes with some technology product you're in it and it's you're in it hard because there's travel involved there's just time constraints there's financial constraints there's faa constraints every everywhere you turn in that project it seems like someone's whacking you over the head trying to stop you and you have to be able to see through that clutter and shove it aside and continue to move forward and it's hard and as as an as investors i've watched investors put money and stuff which just makes no sense if you haven't been in that game before it's like walking to the world series of poker and just learn how to play poker six weeks ago that's what it kind of seems like if you're the engineer watching this happen you're like man i i, I don't think i would invest in this program but people are uh and it, it, because i think they get sold on the beauty of it and uh you hear a lot of discussion uh, which I think is not right, but you hear a lot of discussion about how this is a world changing, is a earth changing program. It's just like the Wright brothers. No, it's not. It is not. It's a it's a financial it's a financial business that has to produce a product to recoup its investment. That's what it is. And if you don't think that it is, then look at all the airplane programs that have collapsed over the last 25, 30 years, and then realize like this is a really, really difficult path in which you're going to go down. And boy, you better have your life in order, and your you should know who your friends are and know who your enemies are, and get this thing to the finish line. It's really, really hard. It's such a narrow window to squirt through to make money on an airplane. And uh, hopefully, you know, the, the Kitty Hawks and the Joby Aviation and all these companies can do it. But it, it's going to take a lot, a lot of work. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.